Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 118, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And at the time we're recording this show, it's actually a different day that we're in today and it just happens to be the first day of summer by looking out the window yeah, right now. We're, we're trapped <laughs> in the studio, but um, it's been really horrible, hasn't it, this winter? kind of been massively foggy like snow sleet you were driving me home the other day and it was like we couldn't see from the car yeah it was crazy <laughs> but today i got text off my mates you know beer garden weather we're going out and i'm like going to record the podcast they're like what but i mean we normally do record this show in the week on the evenings but there has to be a really good reason for us to come in here on a gorgeous sunny saturday afternoon but it is well worth it now today we have got an absolute legend on the retro hour podcast our special guest is going to be Chuck Somerville. Yes, now Chuck Somerville is absolutely amazing. He started doing Apple II games and, you know, John Romero was one of the guys that actually completed his game. And then he went on to Epics with the C64 and, you know, Epics, they did the Lynx originally before yep. it before it came out to Atari. And then um, he went to EAA and then 3DO and then, you know, the, maybe played around with the M2 as well. So. Was that the ill-fated follow-up to the 3DO that never came out? Yeah, yeah. I did hear a story, though, because I remember there was that really amazing demo where it showed, have you ever seen it on YouTube of the, the 3DO M2? And it has kind of like morphing out the ground and texture mapping. It looks amazing. But I heard that apparently that technology was used in like one or two arcade machines and it ended up in a coffee machine. That was like an <laughs> eventual well, we'll have to find out. And, you know, he's bought you the great Chips Challenge and Chips Challenge 2 and Chuck's Challenge as well, which is the new... Versions. And a game that every kid at my school had, California Games. That oh, was yeah. like the biggest was, thing at my school back huge. in the day. Summer Games 2 as well. We could go on, but I think we're just going to talk to Chuck himself and get those yeah. stories. He's going to be coming up. Our special guest, Chuck Somerville, will be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, obviously, the weather is looking gorgeous now here in the UK, and apparently it's going to get even nicer this week. Bit of a heat wave on the way. People are going to be out, maybe days out to the seaside, in the garden, doors open, music playing out. You might want some kind of feel-good music while you're doing all that. Yeah, well, I've been running this uh, 24-hour YouTube radio. It's currently not running at the moment because, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I was streaming it off my PC at home. Yeah. Now, the problem with that was I couldn't do anything without having constant video game music blasting out of my PC. So it's like, I want to do a bit of video editing. They might hear that over it and stuff. So I decided to do a dedicated server for it. So I'm building a PC at the moment, and it's going to be in my house, just chugging away playing 24-hour cool chip music. Like one of these stations uh, on YouTube where you just tune in and have some background music going on. It's live all the time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah constantly, yeah. And it's all created um, by me, so I've picked individual mods, and I've done this over five years, actually. Yeah. So uh, a long time in the planning. All killer, no filler, that's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did it on the other day when I was working at home, and it, it's actually really good to listen to while you're working. Yeah, because really I categorise them all, all into different styles as well, so it will go from, like, really hard dance to, like, a castle soundtrack or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a total mix. So if you want to check that out, we'll put a link in this week's show notes. Should be back up by the time the show comes out? Yeah, yeah. So basically, if you go onto my YouTube channel... And yeah, Retro Ravi, yeah. just search for that and it will appear as live. The live video on the time will be 24-7 Amiga Music. I keep seeing it whenever I open YouTube on my phone, you're at the top. Yeah, so, baby. Yeah. <laughs> what, you get about 100 new subs a day at the minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. as well. Pretty good idea. So if you want a bit of background music while you're working or enjoying the sunshine, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. We should do that one day. We should do a live stream, I think. A lot of people have been asking for it, so maybe we should say on the show, you know, we're going to do a live stream at this point and do a call-in or something. What does that mean, no editing? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> live done. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Everyone to see all our flaws. Yeah. <laughs> of course we don't edit the show. All ads are live to tape anyway. <laughs> now, speaking of our website, theretrohour.com, that is where you can also help us out with the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, you know, with summer coming, we've got loads of events that we're going to be doing. Um, the calendar on our website is kept up to date as well. And if you want to help us out with stuff we're doing right now, you know, server costs, um, website audio hosting, mm. new website that we're making, getting to events, all of that coming up to help promote the podcast and get more people through the door. And the only way that we can do this really is with your help. So we do have a little section on our website where you can make a donation. Now, it can be any amount, big or small, and obviously it is completely optional. We're never going to charge for the show. We'll always put it out for free. But if yeah. you want to help us in the running of it, you know, that is really appreciated. And, yeah, that's a good point, actually, because, you know, some people are on Patreon and stuff, yeah. but we're, we're never going to introduce a paywall. 
No. That is, uh, you know, all this content's going to be for everybody. Well, that's yeah. the thing, you know, we've done the show now for over two years. The reason we do it is because we enjoy doing it and we love it. Yeah. But, you know, we do have to pay for it ourselves otherwise, <laughs> which, you know, we don't mind doing it, but it's fine. But if we get a bit of help, you know, paying for the show, that's always really appreciated, guys. So if you want to help out, all you've got to do is nip onto the website, theretrohour.com. We do have a PayPal uh, button that you can click there, fill in your email address. It takes 10 seconds. Uh, there's cryptocurrency if you're into that as well, which is uh, on the up at the moment, I see. Yep. And for doing that, you'll actually find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, we want to say thank you so much to Hubert Stanzik. Gary Hever. Craig Marshall. Joe Chimmild. Who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. You can find your name in a future episode of the podcast by making a donation right now at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's special guest, Chuck Somerville, uh, a few news stories that we need to talk about. Now, the big thing last year was obviously all of Nintendo's mini consoles. Well, everybody's, isn't it? C64 mini as well at the moment. And uh, Amiga mini people are talking about. Is that happening? Yeah, yeah, it's happening. Colanto have a deal with the guys who did the C64 Mini, so that's actually happening. Well, there is a miniature craze going on right now. And the one that everybody has been asking for ever since, you know, the first SNES Mini and NES Mini were introduced about a year ago was, come on, Sega, when are you going to give us a Mega Drive Mini? Yeah, the Mega Drive Mini that was licensed was released by At Games, was absolutely rubbish. So hopefully this delivers. And it does look very mini. They've done an announcement in Japan, haven't they? So the story here on Polygon says to commemorate the Mega Drive's upcoming 30th anniversary, which is this year, can you believe it? Um, they're going to be doing a miniature classic edition of the legendary 16-bit console, um, the Genesis in America, Mega Drive Rest of the World. Uh, they're going to be calling it the Mega Drive Mini that is going to be released a bit later on this year. And they announced it at a fan event a bit earlier on this week. Now, there is a picture of them on stage holding what appears to be a miniaturised Mega Drive. Now, you know, obviously, Sega did officially licence the At Games console. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is, from what I've seen of this, apparently that is the At Games console that Sega are going to be putting out. Well, maybe they're just going to steal that market. <laughs> you know, they're thinking, why are these guys making money? No, apparently and, and... that is the At Games. What, that he's holding? Yeah, yeah that is what it's going to be. So there is. Well, I hope they improve it, for Christ's <laughs> sake. <laughs> well, there is a link here, um, the source of the article. It's a Japanese website, but you run it through a translator, and apparently it appears that Sega just wants to distribute the At Games Mega Drive oh, in God. Japan. Okay, yeah. But looking at it, it looks a bit different because it hasn't got a cartridge slot on it. And apparently the volume slider works. Okay. So whether they've kind of changed the shell of it a little or, bit. Or, or updated the firmware or something on there. Well, that's the thing. It's an FPGA-based system, I believe. What I'm hoping is, if Sega are going to take it on and give it, like, official Sega status, they're at least going to work on it a bit more and bring it up to, like, you know, do a bit of quality control on it. Yeah, and to be honest, like, this is pretty easy for them, isn't it? They just put this out and they're guaranteed to make money. It's, like, (laughs) no-brainer. I remember using a Sega Mega Drive emulator in, like, 1995. Yeah, yeah. It's not hard to do, surely, (laughs) to get one working well. And this at games thing, I mean, have you have you actually played with one? Yeah, yeah, I played with one, but I played with the sound off. Right, okay. And it was okay. Well, the UI is awful. You know, it's yeah. really tricky to navigate around that. But I think if they yeah, get the audio improved, do a bit of work on the user interface, there's some big emissions on there as well, like no Streets of Rage games, which you need to have in there. Well, what's going to happen now, though? Are at games going to get annoyed and make, like, a, another unofficial one that does that? Or, I don't know, how's their relationship going to change? That's well, going to be I, interesting. Well, I imagine if Sega is simply distributing their product, they must have a very close partnership. Mm. But, I mean, looking at this, it doesn't look like the one that we've got on sale over here at the moment. So it looks like either they've worked with that games to modify it a little bit, so I'm hoping there will be better quality control there that Sega have got involved with. The one thing I do like about them, though, I've used a control pad, see, like wireless ones. No, no. They're really good. Yeah. It's oh, like the six-button okay. pro controller, yeah, it's actually really good. So there is some good points to the At Games one, but I'm hoping if Sega are involved with it, you know, bit of quality control before it goes out the door, Yeah, they must pay attention to what the, uh, the community is saying about it. You know what's good, though? I mean, Sega are back in the hardware market. Yeah, eventually, after it, it's been probably the easiest possible thing to ever do, yeah. <laughs> like that, and they still mess it up a little bit. So. Well, the last thing they made was Dreamcast. So if Sega are going to be manufacturing, it is kind of yeah. Sega coming yeah, back no, to the no, hardware it, market. It, it is good, yeah. <laughs> I'm just being cynical. <laughs> cynical Ravi, come on. Well, speaking of Sega, and this is something that I'm very excited about, because you know, the Switch is my most played console at the moment. The Sega Ages series is coming to the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, now, this is really cool, because... Um, I've kind of had these little 
game compilation packs of Sega older stuff like the Mega Drive collection and stuff on Steam. But yeah. it's going to be nice coming to the Switch to have all these games, 15 releases are planned, you know. Well, that's cool because it actually means they've beaten Nintendo to the Switch with the virtual console. Yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> yeah. But they are going to be doing, I mean, they announced this at the uh, Sega Fez show or FES. Uh, they're going to be bringing Sonic the Hedgehog, the original Fantasy Star, Thunder Force 4, um, as part of the Sega Ages line, they're going to be bringing out to the Nintendo Switch. And like you did mention there, I mean, it's around the same time that they're bringing out the compilation that they're doing as well for the, um, the PC, yeah. PS4, and the Xbox One, which is the Sega Mega Drive collection. That I think from the looks of that, it looks pretty similar to the one that came out on the 360 and the PS3 a couple of years ago. Definitely. And I think there's going to be stuff like, you know, Final Fantasy on this and like yeah. Gold. Golden Axe and Streets of Rage, you know, they'll, they'll eventually put out kind of all the classic titles, I hope. Well, the thing about the, you know, the compilation that uh, they're bringing out on the, the Xbox and PS4, I know a couple of our mates are involved in that, aren't they? Like Kim Justice and... I think Daniel so, Davidson. yeah, because there's, there's, there's this um, Sega Forever, yeah. and they were basically, oh, look, people care about us now, so let's start sending out stuff and start contacting YouTubers and stuff, which is quite nice compared to what Nintendo do, which is shut them all down. <laughs> well, I saw Daniel, um, I think it was on his Instagram, I don't know if you saw that on Twitter, uh, Slopes Game Room. He did a video where he was in Sega's HQ. He was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> His <laughs> eyes were so big and wide, yeah. But that is cool that Sega are kind of, you know, getting the community involved as well. And obviously, they're kind of getting to that stage now where, I mean, to be fair, Sega haven't got many new franchises that are setting the no. world alight. So it makes sense to look back and celebrate the kind of, you know, their glory days, as it were, I suppose. And the fact that I was well, a lot bit... Sonic Mania and stuff like that, they're, 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 they're on that road, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I was a bit gutted that the Mega Drive collection wasn't coming out the switch so having at least the you know this series coming out on the switch and having a few other games on there is at least something and you know i'm pleased they're doing that because i think with the switch i find it's selling really well at the moment but a lot of developers are still kind of a bit cautious of it and i think when they put a game or two out on them to see how well it does like, oh, okay well we'll go all in there yeah yeah i was on it the other day and i was going through the store and i was like all of these games like 50 quid for tetris yeah <laughs> i was yeah. like god that's the thing you could understand when it first came out you know, but it's been out over a year now. It's like 70 quid for a golf game or something like that. It's really, really bad. What is annoying is, though, you often get stuff on there that might be like nine quid on the PS4 and it's like 25 quid on yeah, the Switch. Yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah d- don't do that, Sega, please. I don't want to pay 50 quid for Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> now, we got the most amazing letter the other day from uh, a guy called Ryan now. He's a listener in California. Uh, let me read out the letter that you sent, and it goes, Hey, Dan and Ravi, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Um, since I started listening to you guys, I've started building up a great Commodore 64 collection. I've even learned assembly coding, tried to make a bit of fun stuff from the system, and I've learned a great deal of fun games from you guys and listen every week to the podcast, which in itself is amazing, isn't it? Mm. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when Joe was on, we talked a bit about um, Dance Dance Revolution, didn't we? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, Dance Dance, I just have this one image of my dad at Sega World. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> big trench coat. He had a side bag as well. Just going mental on Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> you know, whenever I've gone on Dance Dance Revolution, you don't realise my knees ache for days after I've been on that thing. No, but, but that was such a good, uh, interactive, different form of gaming, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like... Also, it had that whole element of people standing around and watching. Yeah. It was, it and performance, you know, performance in real life rather than on the game, you know. It was, kind of a, it was like street dancing, wasn't it? You know, yeah, watching yeah. it and stuff. Well, you know, we keep talking about all these anniversaries that things are celebrating. Dance Dance Revolution is 20 years old, which is nuts. And the freestyle scene apparently faded away in California. But what they've actually done is, and apparently we've inspired him to do this, which I think is amazing, they're actually going to be doing a 20th anniversary of Dance Dance Revolution with a freestyle takeover event that's going to be held in California. Apparently they did one, it got a really big crowd, but this year they're going to put like a, a bit of a modern kind of spin on it with like Twitch and YouTube yeah, that's and social the thing. media. So, so if you want to see your cool dancer, you'd have to go down to the arcade, see when they're in there and wait for the crowd and get a good position. But now you've got the internet. Mm -hmm. So people can actually submit on a cyber cipher. So they do like little freestyle competitions. You can record your freestyle, then submit (laughs) it and get judged on it and uh, kind of 
yeah, get uh, full results and maybe win some stuff. It's quite so you can do cool. from anywhere in the world. Yeah, anywhere in the world, yeah. Well, it, During he, this freestyle contest. Well, he says at the end of his letter, he goes, listening to the Retro Hour podcast was a very big inspiration for me to get involved in revitalising uh, the old community full of fantastic gaming memories. I want to thank you guys for what you're doing and keeping this stuff alive, which, you know, I think is wonderful. So We need to do a Dance Dance Revolution dance-off <laughs> enter it, don't we, Dan? I bet you've got some moves on there. Oh, right, wicked, you? yeah. I'll start voguing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Britney Spears toxic or something. I bet you've done that before. So if you want to find out more, their website is freestyletakeover.wordpress.com. So thank you, Ryan. That is amazing when we inspire stuff like that. Uh, I, I think that's yeah, really I, was, I was blown away by that letter. Thank you. You know, we're at play in the uh, in the summer. We've got to get a couple of videos recorded. Oh, <laughs> Maybe after a drink yeah. or, or ten. Now, speaking of events that are coming up as well, we got another actual uh, letter here off uh, Kevin George. You know, he's uh, one of our listeners and wanted to let us know about a, a really cool event that's apparently going to be displaying every console ever released in the UK. Yeah, it's a, a Pontypool Museum and it's called uh, Generation Games. Okay. So it's basically everyone that was on sale, which is really cool just to see them all in the kind of place like, hmm, choices. And it comes from like 1972 to present. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a full spanning. You've probably got the old um, biotone Pong machines. Oh, you know, like the uh, grandstand machines yeah. and stuff like that. If they've got every console, it must mean like even the weird stuff like the Amstrad GX 4000 and the Commodore 64 GS, that was a game system. You know what, actually, I've been thinking about that recently because you know that Commodore 64 Mini's out now and it hasn't got a keyboard. <laughs> so a lot of people are putting games on, they're like, I can't press a button. I'm like, well, you think we'd have realised that after the Commodore 64 console like yeah, 30 years no. ago. <laughs> so if you want to go along and see, so I mean, there's going to be stuff there, I imagine it'll be like, oh my God, you know seen one of those in person for the first time. Yeah, and it's uh, the 31st of March till the 28th of October at the Pontypool Museum. It's running all throughout the summer yeah. as well. So if you want to find out more and get your tickets booked for that, we'll put it in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, in our community, if you want to get into collecting games, there's not that many new stuff out there. It's generally going to shops and getting kind of second-hand goods or used goods, you know. A lot of shops actually specialise in selling them now, don't they? Yeah. One thing you don't expect to find, though, when you're buying an old, maybe a NES cartridge, is a big stash of drugs inside. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I, these stories are crazy. I've started to see a, quite a few of them, but this one's very unique, which is a retro gamer collector, Justin Turner. Um, he kind of uploaded <laughs> a video where he'd got these NES carts. Yeah. And he was like, oh, these weigh a little bit more. They're too heavy. <laughs> yeah, they're too heavy. So let's take them apart and see what it is. So he did it on YouTube. And as he takes them apart, he finds these packages of, I think it's £5,000 street value of drugs. God. And then he opens another one and he finds like <laughs> thousands of pounds worth of cash hidden inside the NES car. There is $5,000 bills, bills yeah, yeah. rolled up inside. It's um, a game of golf. On the nest. <laughs> and which is weird. Apparently, the money dates back to 1985. So, do you think like some gangster or drug baron or something <laughs> like that you sitting in there? Maybe you got wasted and like, you know. Forgot about it and traded them in. That's like, <laughs> like, that insane, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's insane. So, he actually finds it and then at the end, he rings the police. Yeah. And then they're coming to his house and he films it all. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you look at inside them here. And what is weird is, it's actually a copy of Golf and Roller Games, but they reckon, opening the cartridge, they've actually deliberately modified them to fit these inside. Yeah, so they've, they've smashed the PCBs down, but the bottom is still actually visible. Yeah, so the game doesn't work, I imagine. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a proper smuggling operation, that one is. But didn't you... Didn't we talk about that story where this kid found some uh, meth in yeah. his um, game the other day? It's really weird, yeah. I think there's two incidents last year. I remember hearing about a GameStop in America. And, yeah, they'd gone through the manuals. One story was it was a kid, and he had Grand Theft Auto V, which an 11-year-old probably shouldn't be playing no, anyway. No. Let's, let's get that out there. But, you know, when the game loads, it takes a long time to load that game, doesn't it? And like we all used to back in the day, flip through the manual while the game's loading up, and he found this little bag in there, and apparently it was, uh, yeah, meth. Amphetamine. <laughs> and he went to his mum and said, what's this? But apparently that had happened the year before as well. Jesus. So I don't know what's going on. All these gangsters maybe using their uh, their kids' bedroom like video game collection yeah. to stash well, them in. let's hope so. they're not using like a rare copy of Castlevania. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking like, you know, the, the police or like the FBI or something are going to get wind of this and suddenly like Start gamers... Start collecting games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going to be coming in raiding gamers' rooms yeah. to find stuff. So how weird though. So if you want to watch that video... Definitely one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard in retro. One gaming. not to be missed. Absolutely, we'll put that in this week's show notes as well. Now, this is a story I never thought I'd read. There's a new cassette coming out by Toshiba. Yeah, let's celebrate because, man, high quality 
new cassette done. So this, this is, is high resolution audio. A cassette tape? Yeah, it's a okay. cassette tape, but remember all the tapes at the moment are really bad quality yeah. because they've only got one factory. They're only doing this. Well, Toshiba are actually investing in making high resolution audio cassettes. Now, these are pretty cool because we all used cassettes in England in our old um, systems to kind of load stuff. A lot of other countries uh, could afford discs. Oh, on computers, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, this is really relevant for um, kind of computer gamers. Yeah. But also, there's this whole cassette revival at the moment, isn't there? Like, we were talking about Sega Forever, actually. They sent out a, a, a cassette with kind of game soundtracks on it yeah, uh, to YouTubers. So, you know, these are really popular. Well, I think cassettes are kind of... I never liked cassettes originally, if I'm honest. I used them because I had to. Mm. Like, you know, when Minidisc came along, I got rid of my tape players and everything. But I was kind of... You know, you're probably the same. We both love music, so I had, like, quite a high-end, you know, cassette recorder, and I think, like, saved up for ages for it, and I was quite proud of my Walkman back in the day, I must admit. But... It does seem bizarre that there is like this renewed interest because we talked, didn't we, on the show a few months ago that there is now a factory that's resumed making tape again because yeah. the world supply is running out. So there's a renewed interest but, in it. But it's a lower quality tape. Like mm. at the moment, a lot of this is coming out and it's lower quality. This is like high resolution. They've said basically Japan has a strong passion for technology yeah. and recognises audio standards. And it's like an authority on that. So it's kind of... You know, if they're going to mass market produce these, they're going to really reach that high standard of tape quality that we used to get back in the days that are pretty expensive. Like, if you look at metal tapes at the moment on eBay, my God, you can spend a fortune on those. What's interesting is, though, because, I mean, there's a report here, what Hi-Fi have been talking about it, and they haven't really revealed exactly how it's going to work and whether or not it's going to be backwards compatible. Okay. Which, um... If it is, that'd be amazing. You know, if you can yeah. kind of get like CD audio quality out of your own like 30 year old like Walkman or your mum's ghetto blaster, you know what I mean? That'd be pretty amazing. But I, I do wonder why, though. Read I mean, your games 10 times quicker. <laughs> yeah, but for computers, that'd be quite cool. Yeah. You know, if you can. So I, I did this the other day. I, I was quite bored on Sunday. Samantha had gone out. I'd finished work, got home, and I thought, I've not played my Commodore 16 for a while. I thought, I, I set it up. There is a version of there of Paperboy. And I hadn't played that for years. It wasn't ever the best version of it, but it was pretty much a technical marvel. And I thought, oh, I'll give that a go. I must not have played it for 20 years. Put the tape in. It loaded and the graphics were all corrupted. And I was like, oh, okay. Turned to the side over. Didn't load at all. Looked and there's a bit of, like, mould in the case and yeah. stuff. And, and then I thought, you know, this is a 30-year-old game. I'm, not, I'm actually more amazed at any do work anymore, to be fair. <laughs> so having something like this for the computer community, if you want to keep it real, keep it old school, you don't want to use, like, SD cards and all that, there is value for us, I think. Mm. But I wonder who in the audio community is interested enough for them to actually warrant producing it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, because when we first heard about this kind of cassette revolution coming back, it, yeah. was, it, was, it was regarding prisoners, and that prisoners were the only people getting cassettes printed because you couldn't use them as a weapon or anything like that. And people, So they were still making them for just prisons, and then they, now they've started to go to the hipsters. And then it's going to the console people again, and now it's going to the audio high-end people. So it's really <laughs> odd, isn't it? Well, I actually do quite like these kind of weird audio formats. Um, this guy on YouTube called Modern Classic, I don't know if you've seen him yeah. before, and he actually did a video uh, the other day, actually, Super Audio CD, Is It Worth It in 2018? And this was a format that was um, essentially trying to do surround sound with CD and everything, but it was massive failure. But audio files actually really like it. Okay. And, there are, you know, you look at Techmoan on YouTube, he covers all these kind of weird formats that never took off. So I am interested in that, but I do wonder, getting a new one in 2018, I am quite intrigued as to what they're thinking is behind that. Yeah, and how it sounds, because... I always remember tape sounding crap, sorry to say <laughs> yeah. it. That tape sounded nice, yeah. but uh, tape, no. Well, that's the thing. It's I'm nostalgic for a lot of stuff. I love vinyl. You know, you, you're a vinyl head as well. We, we, we like music on vinyl sounds great. The two things I don't really miss from back in the day is cassette tapes and videotapes. Because yeah. even back then, I thought the quality was dreadful. Yeah. So it's like, I've got no desire to sit down and watch like, you know, Alien on VHS tape when I've got it on Blu-ray. It's like, you know, there are some things that necessarily, you know, progress has been a good thing, but, you know, we never know. We might be impressed, so we'll keep an eye out for it. Now, of course, if you have got any stories you'd like us to talk about on the Retro Hour podcast, we are on Twitter, and we have been tweeting quite a bit this week. Yeah, feel free to share us and let any of your friends know about the Retro Hour. Like, the best thing is word of mouth. You know, if you recommend someone, uh, something to someone, it's just going to be 
much better than uh, kind of us saying it. Yeah, or an advert or something. Yeah. Well, we've had a few of that this week. You know, a tweet came in the other day. Can anyone recommend a good 8-bit computer game podcast? Someone recommended us. Yeah. We've got to do a listener And also that, check the back catalogue because we get so many people saying, oh, I can't wait till you get John Romero on or I can't wait till you get this guy. And we're like, he was on this episode, guys. Yeah, there's loads of them on our website. And actually, we might start feeding a few more out on Twitter if you ever miss any. So uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, at Retro Hour UK, we're on Facebook, Instagram as well. All of those are on our website at theretrohour.com. So that's been this week's news. And now, are you ready for the main event? Let's talk about classics like Epics, California Games, Chips Challenge, the 3DO, the Lynx, Summer Games 2. Chuck Somerville is this week's special guest. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast. I must admit, I've been excited all week for this week's special guest. Welcome to the show, Chuck Somerville. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, we're going to get into some incredible stories, I'm sure, of games like California Games and Chips Challenge, your time at Epics and EA. Um, we always like to get a little bit of background on our guests, though, and kind of go you know, back to what influenced <laughs> you in the first place. So it would be quite nice to find out. What was kind of your earliest memory of computers or video games? What did it kind of all start for you? What, what got you interested? Well, back when I was uh, in uh, probably about seventh or eighth grade, and this would have been back in the mid seventies, probably around nineteen seventy-five ish or so. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be in a, a program where they were experimenting. Um, giving kids that had uh, talented and gifted um, uh, abilities, giving them some uh, advanced training and, uh, and things. So we were, uh, I was given access to the college, uh, to the computer on the college campus uh, in my hometown. And uh, I immediately started writing games on it. <laughs> and uh, then uh, after that, uh, we started getting magazines, um, uh, like Byte magazine, really old magazine. I was reading about the new homebrew computers that were coming out, and when we, when I read about the Apple computer, the Apple II computer, I was really excited. And uh, so my dad bought me one of those. Actually, bought the board only option, which was only available for like one month. Um, they they would sell just the circuit board. <clears throat> But my dad worked for IBM as a office uh, office products repairman, so he had access to things like power supplies and um, typewriter cases and things like that. So we built up our own version of the Apple II from that circuit board, and again, I, I went right into writing games on it for my in basic. Do you think technology would have been a bigger part of your life if it wasn't for your father's influence? Then did he really influence your passion? Oh, my father was definitely a, a big part of it. Um, he was, you know, when I, before I went off to college, he was uh, he was really really supportive, and you know, being uh, being the sort of a, a, a attention seeking um, nerd that I am, <laughs> um, whenever I was working on stuff, um, you know, I would I would go to my father and say, "Look at this cool thing I did," and, and he was very supportive and saying, "Yes, that's really cool." and there were actually times when, when he would actually sit next to me while I was working and, you know, watch what I was doing and I would discuss what I was doing with them. So, yeah, he was a very important part of my early uh, uh, computer work. Well, we don't really hear much in Europe about the Apple II scene, but um, quite a lot of stuff we hear is about kind of John Romero as well being involved in it. And I heard he was a big fan of uh, Grubs in Space. Well, actually, he's a bigger fan of Snakebite. So I guess he he wrote the uh, reviews for both Crisis Space and uh, Snakebite on movie games for me. Basically, John Romero was, was like you know a real retro Apple junkie, and uh, and he was a uh, he was a fan of, of my early work, uh, particularly Snakebite. I found out later after I got to know John that he was one of the few people in the world that had finished all 29 levels of the game. Um, it was the levels were designed to be asymptotically difficult <laughs> as it uh, progressed, and I didn't actually expect a human being to be able to finish it. Uh, <laughs> but John Romero did, and he threw a party one year um, in Dallas, Texas, when he was starting his Ion Storm company. And he invited a bunch of the Apple II legends um, to all come to this party. And I went to that party, which is where I met him for the first time. 
And it was an amazing party um, because there were people there that were, you know, heroes of mine from those days that I had never met in person. Uh, of course, John was, you know, excited because all of his heroes were there. But then again, he arranged the party. <laughs> but even like you as well, I mean, John Romero, he went on to be such a big name in gaming. And the fact that really he, he was probably looking up at you and idolizing you because you made these games. Well, yeah, it was it was really fun, funny, you know, getting to know him, you know, because it was like this mutual admiration society because I, I'm, a, I'm a huge game. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Doom and Quake. And I, I played a lot of that game. So, yeah, it's really great. And then, uh, you know, meeting John, get, getting to meet Brenda uh, through him. When, when I met Brenda, uh, her name at the time was Brenda Breathwaite. When I met her, I didn't really know who she was. But as I started looking into her history, I was, you know, truly astonished at, at the, the depth of her talent. And the fact that the two got married was just amazing. Well, I heard that Grubs in Space was even popular outside the gaming world. Is it true you got, like, coverage in a metal music magazine? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, different magazines review games. But, yeah, Heavy Metal did did review the game. Um, and that, <laughs> that was pretty funny because, uh, it, um, I mean, I, I never had a, a, a game reviewed in, you know, a magazine other than a computer magazine. And so they did a review of it in... Uh, and it was it was great. I felt like, okay, now I'm famous. <laughs> Maybe I should try for rich next. <laughs> and I heard you got a, a few letters from a, a prisoner that well, wanted to yeah, learn that, programming. That's the other amusing thing. Apparently, some prisoner um, read the article, and he uh, he called he uh, he wrote me a letter. Um, and sent it to, to Epics. He, I guess he had figured out that I was at Epics at the time, or maybe it was when I was a serious. I don't remember for sure. But anyway, so I got this letter, and I read this letter, and he he was excited about the game, and he wanted to learn how to make adventure games, and he, he said he had access. He had plenty of time since he was incarcerated, and he had access to uh, a TRS-80. And um, I don't think I wrote back to him. <laughs> <laughs> You know what it does prove, though, the fact that you know you were in the heavy metal magazine, you were getting letters like that. It must have proved that gaming was crossing over into the mainstream at that point. It certainly was, yes. Uh, the actually the uh, the earliest write up that I can recall of, of my work was when I was in college after Snakebite was released. Um, I had gone back to my hometown. My hometown is in Huntington, West Virginia. <clears throat> And my sister arranged for one of the uh, one of the writers at the local newspaper to do a story about me. Um, so I'm there at my parents' house, and the newspaper people come and they they interview me about it. And there's there's a fun article somewhere about you know me uh, and my video game. And this is very very early on. This is like um, 1982 ish, plus or minus a year, and. <clears throat> I distinctly remember one question from that interview, and they said, do you think anything will ever um, stop video games? And I said, only if they outlaw it. Well, how did you move then from Sirius to Epics? Like, what was the process? How did you find out about the job? <clears throat> so um, Sirius got into financial problems, They uh, and I don't know all the details in it, um, but there was something about some some deal through um, some other age, uh, partner they had that went south, and they ended up holding the bag on like a lot of money and product that they couldn't move. So they became insolvent. So when they when they went down, the president of Sirius was Jerry Jewell. Um, I spent two weeks trying to work for a, a, a different company in mainstream um, software, like writing software for a newspaper. Um, but Jerry uh, contacted me, said he had gotten a gig at Epics and uh, wanted to know if I wanted to move along with him to go work at Epics. And uh, I think he was just contract, uh, contract project manager, but he was looking for programmers that he trusted because they, uh, he had a project to convert summer games from the Commodore 64 to the Apple II. So uh, I came on board Epics to do that. Epics hired me as a salaried employee to do that project. At the time, I was living in the Sacramento area, actually, uh, uh, a suburb of Sacramento called Rancho Cordova, which is where Sirius was located. So I was living there and working um, uh, on this, cal on this uh, summer games project. 
And uh, then when that when that finished off, um, Jerry and I tried to break away and do a little consulting studio, and that didn't go anywhere. So I ended up going back to Epics and actually moving to the Bay Area. And I worked for Epics for about uh, about seven years until Epics finally collapsed. Well, what was the culture like at Epics then when you first joined? <laughs> Must have been quite an exciting place to be. When I started, it was it was a lot smaller. There were probably only about fifty people there when I started. Um, and we had, uh, you know, we were, had the shrink wrap machines and the production facilities and the, we, we did some disc, I don't know, we didn't do disc duplication there, but anyway, we had, uh, the, the shrink wrap line was there in, in the building. I think that building was in, uh, Sunnyvale. <clears throat> then the company grew and we eventually moved uh, farther north on the peninsula towards Sacramento, um, towards San Francisco. And we moved to Redwood City into one of the buildings uh, that was closer to the bay, one of the higher-end uh, commercial places. And at the height of Epics, there were, uh, there were 150 people, and it, it was covered, you know, a, a pretty large space. And um, so, the, so the atmosphere when I started Epics was quite different than the atmosphere atmosphere when I left at this at the beginning it was much more close-knit and you know we would we would have uh, you know party uh, game parties and things um, but toward the end uh, it was a much more sprawling bigger company and there were different divisions and and I was in the the links um, group and I had a special card key to get into our area and like not everybody in the company was allowed into the area that I was in and there was some jealousy over that and then there was, you know, um, I'm not saying it was bad. People still had a good time and, you know, we would run around the office with our uh, laser tag from World of Wonder and or, or we would shoot each other with the Nerf guns and things like that. There was there was plenty of lighthearted fun there, but I'm just saying it was it was a much different environment at the end than it was at the beginning. Well, the, they were famous for producing the um, game series, and the thing about the game series is we found them really good value for money because you had about four or five games in one. Um, were they massively successful or popular? Uh, well, I, I couldn't really speak to the the financial level of it. I I, I know they were pretty popular. Um, I, I can tell you this, that when we were working on those, and, and, and again, the very first product I worked for Epics was a port of one of these games, Summer Games, um, to the Apple II. After that, I never did an, another Apple product. I worked on the Commodore almost exclusively, Commodore 64. But they, they tended to be a bit tedious uh, from a development point of view because the marketing department obviously knew they had a they had a format that was working for them, so they would you know try to come up with the next excuse to come out with another game in, in the game series, and then it was up to us as engineering uh, to try to find ways to find individual events that matched whatever theme they had picked, and try to come up with a fun little game that was kind of lighthearted and not too deep, but you know still fun to play. So I, I did quite a few of them, um, but they're really I didn't have a lot of passion for them because it was like, oh yeah, okay, so let me figure out how to make this thing, this luge game where you're sliding down a luge um, thing. How, how do I make that fun? Well, I remember you know for me as a kid, every kid at school had a copy of California Games, and you know living in rainy England at the time, that seemed like really cool and like really exotic and stuff to Bo- us. Bohemian, you know. Yeah, it did. It seemed like California yes. surfer dudes and all that. But it was, I mean, how did you come up with the ideas of that? Were you actually playing those games yourself, or what was kind of the so, the thinking behind California Games? So California Games was kind of an exception to the rule for all these these game series games. <clears throat> um, I think it was originally. Um, the concept was originally envisioned by uh, Matt Householder to do something that was based more on urban extreme sports. The thing is, that there were people in our group that actually did some of these things. Some of us played around with hacky sacks. I was actually a skateboarder. Uh, I would actually ride a skateboard in skateboard parks, you know, and drop down into the bowls and carve and, and all that stuff. So I actually knew about skateboarding, um, which is why I ended up riding the half pipe. Uh, game for the California games you know it was it was a bit more you know at at our heart you know it's stuff stuff that was more personal to us when we did it I I think it showed in the game 
Um, the guy who wrote the surfing event, John Loop, actually was from Hawaii. So surfing, you know, was was very important to him. So he, he really understood how to make that game great. And it's kind of like all the games that weren't in the Olympics, <laughs> you know, yes. the, the left out ones. Yeah. Um, was it hard to get like the kind of balance? Like, are we going to go for really high end graphics, or are we going to go for gameplay? And to get that mix perfect. Well, back back at that time, when you're writing for the Commodore sixty four, um, you you basically would would push the graphics as far as the platform would let you. Uh, much much different way of writing games than today. Writing games, say in Unity on the PC, because. The, the hardware just wasn't capable. And it wasn't a matter, it wasn't just CPU power. It's that you can't just draw it at, with a triangle engine. You can't just, you know, draw where the guy is on, on the wave or where he is on the half pipe. You had these, these things called sprites, which are kind of like a mouse cursor. And, you know, you only have like eight of them. And you can move them around the screen and they're independent of the background. And you have to figure out how to, how to optimize it so that you can do something interesting with very limited graphics. Well, let's talk about one of my personal favorite systems, and I think a very underrated machine. I love the Atari Lynx, um, especially that first model. You know, well, it model was one. the Lynx then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then, at that point. Um, when did you first see the Lynx then? Do you remember like the, hearing about it and what the kind of original designs and plans were for it? Um, well, I, as you probably know, I was on the development team for the hardware, as far as I know, there was some deal, some deal that was negotiated at upper level management to to develop this this hardware because the Lynx was developed there. That's why I was in, in the Lynx division, you know, in the section that nobody could go in except us. And as part of that negotiation, they brought on board uh, R.J. Michael and Dave Needle, who were principal engineers behind the Amiga. So we knew that it was going to be something amazing right off the bat. Because the Amiga was, I think, the first um, desktop computer that had a hardware graphics engine built into it. So, you know, that team, of course, wanted to build a handheld gaming system that had a hardware graphic assist. So the Lynx, it had not a triangle engine. It actually had, um, it would draw rectangles. So it had a, a hardware sprite engine. But it could distort them a little bit. It could change the scale every time it drew the line, um, so you could get you know things that were like wider at the top and and narrower at the bottom and things like that. But it was it was a different piece of hardware than what people had normally seen in the gaming industry. Well, I remember you know seeing the the Game Boy at first, and all like you know the kids at school going wild about the Game Boy. And before that, the the Tiger Electronics things. I mean, even the fact that it had a a beautiful color display. I mean, it really did feel like the Lynx was like a next generation. Were the goals of that to make it quite a high end system then and quite powerful? Yeah, it was supposed to be powerful, and it was supposed to blow everybody away. And I think for at the time, the people who who knew about it were you know really quite impressed. Um, but Epics ran into some financial problems. I think the funding for the project ran out, and they had to seek funding elsewhere. And I think that's when the project eventually got being sold off to Atari. Um, and I personally believe that uh, Atari um, didn't, you know, they, they didn't invent it; uh, they bought it. So I don't think they had as much invested uh, in it, you know, emotionally or culturally. So <clears throat> I don't think they promoted it as high as they did their other, uh, as much as they did their other machines, you know, like the Jaguar or or, when, or some of the other machines. So I, I think it could have been more successful if if Atari had supported it more. That must have been quite heartbreaking in a way to see how much you know resources and work you guys put into it, and then watching Atari kind of mismanage it like that. That must have been pretty upsetting. Yes, it was. But you know, we had, by that time. Um, the company had basically crashed, and uh, all the great talent had kind of spread to the four winds. And you know, the electronic arts and the Brodermans of the of the world had snapped up all that talent. Well, how did Chips Challenge come about then? So, Chips Challenge was one of the launch titles, and I had originally been working on a kind of a first-person tank game that uh, was, I think, it was mostly inspired by. Um, Return Fire, uh, which was a, an, uh, a 3DO game. 
I think I have that history right. Anyway, so I've been wanting to do, to do something that was, you know, like a tank wandering around between walls and things. <clears throat> but I, I really couldn't get the I couldn't get the math working on it correctly, and that project was canceled. And we still had about ten weeks before we had to have all the software finished before you know they went into production of the cartridges. And I didn't have anything to do, but I was in the Lynx division, and I had wanted to do. I, I had this idea for this map-based puzzle game. So I pitched the idea, and the management kind of shrugged and said, "Okay, if you think you can do it in ten weeks, you know, we'll, we want to get as many titles as we can." So for me, this was a great opportunity because for so many years at Epic, it had been, you know, working on games for the game series or you know something that somebody else had come up with, and so this was something of my own design, and I, I really dug in hard, and I was really lucky at the time because uh, a lot of the other titles were finishing up. And the testers that we had, because we had a whole room full of testers for the Lynx, uh, they were becoming free too because the other games were finishing up. So I had, you know, a bunch of programmers that were, you know, kind of game designers. I had a bunch of testers. I had an army of people behind me. So we finished the thing in 10 weeks, um, you know, start to finish. The Chips Challenge was done. So it was, you know, amazingly difficult schedule. But it, it was probably, I would say, the largest team that I had worked on to date. Because before then, um, it had just been you know one or two people working together on on a project. How did the Microsoft version come around? One of the guys that worked at Epix uh, early on, uh, or actually he was, he was there to, even till the end of the day, is a guy named uh, Tony Garcia. And Tony Garcia was a friend of mine uh, all the way back to the Serious Software days. He had worked in production at Serious Software, and I, I had recruited him into Epix and. He was working in the marketing department at Epix. Um, he moved there because he started as a tester, and then he moved into marketing. But when uh, he, he left Epix at some point, and he went to go work at Microsoft in their uh, their newly minted game division. And uh, the story I recall from from Tony is that they were looking for products, and and he liked Chips Challenge, and he talked them into doing a port of it. Uh, to go into their Windows Entertainment Pack. And that's the version that most people know of Chip's Challenge. Um, and uh, I didn't know that this was even happening until they were done with it. So when they when they were finished, they showed me the, the IBM version. They called it the IBM version at the time, the PC version. And I was a bit disappointed because it didn't have the smooth scrolling that the original Lynx version did. It, the guy jumped from place to place, but... I think that was probably a matter that the the PC probably didn't have the power, the computing power at the time to do scrolling animation like that. Well, we've heard that from quite a few guests actually that uh, Microsoft have taken their products and put them in entertainment packs without permission. Um, did you make much money out of Chips Challenge? Uh, I made no money out of Chips Challenge. Um, by um, in contrast, I made a lot of money off of California Games, but at the time I was writing California Games, I, I was on a royalty uh, compensation project, uh, you know, agreement. And uh, in fact, California Games made so much money that um, our management department said, "Oh, programmers aren't allowed to make that much money. That's, there's something wrong if programmers are making that much money." So. They offered me uh, to change my my contract at that point to something where I got um, stock options, and uh, and they raised my salary a bit. Um, and so when I wrote Chips Challenge, I actually was not under royalty, and I was just a salaried employee. And sadly enough, I, I'd like to point this out. I, I probably shouldn't. My 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 partner Barn probably would. Uh, is that uh, when, when I did Chips Challenge 2, which I wrote after I left the game industry, um, I had hoped to make some money off of that. And when we finally got it published um, through uh, my partner, Barn, who lives in London, uh, Barn Cleave. We did, Chips we did Chuck's Challenge, which is a whole interesting story on its own. And then we finally released Chips Challenge 2. Still have not, I still have not received any money yet from any game related to Chips Challenge, even though I have the right to get that money because all the money that we've made on it 
it's gone back into paying for the development of it. And um, the since I have a full-time job that's not gaming, um, the most of the work um, for those games, or a lot of the work for those games, has, has been done by uh, an independent game development studio. So we've had to spend the money that we've made on the game paying for the development of it. Well, Chip Challenge 2 did finally come out in, was it 2015? What was, yes. I, I remember reading about that game, like it was kind of up there with like Duke Nukem Forever, the fact that people thought it was never going to see the light of day. What was the story with that delay and why did it take so long to finally come out? It was mostly legal issues. So, um, first of all, I, I wasn't, I couldn't actually write the game until I left the game industry. Uh, because, uh, you know, like I, I worked for, after I worked for ethics, I worked for electronic arts and 3DO, but you know, I can't write a game that was owned by ethics if I'm right working for electronic arts. <clears throat> so when I, when I left the game industry back in the mid nineties or early to mid nineties was when I wrote uh, chips challenge two, because I'd been getting emails from fans asking for a sequel. I spent two years writing it. But before I started writing it, I contacted the, the company who owned the rights, a company called Bridgestone Multimedia. And I said, I want to do this project. And do I have your support? And they said, yes. And that was kind of the end of it. So I wrote this game. And at the end, when I finished it, I said, okay, I'm done. And they said, right. Okay. So um, we want $300,000 and we want um, guaranteed sales figures of some amount uh, every quarter. And, you know, you can go ahead and publish it. Uh, and, like, they're not even a publisher, or they're not even going to publish it, right? They just want a lot of money because they own the name. And I'm just a guy living in a suburb in California. Now, I don't have $300,000. It's no way. You know, so it just wasn't going to happen. I was really upset about that for a couple of years. I, I couldn't sell the game under the name Chips Challenge because I didn't own the name. And, uh, you know, I don't own the rights to it. So years went by, and every few years, somebody would contact me and say, uh, we'd like to convert, uh, we'd like to put Chips Challenge on the iPhone or something like that. And I'd say, yeah, sounds like a good idea. So contact this company, Bridgestone Multimedia, and if you can get the get, get us the rights to do that and sell it, then we'll move forward. And, and they all usually shut up at that point. <laughs> because uh, the thing with Bridgestone is Bridgestone isn't a, isn't a video game company. They own the they own the title because they bought it kind of in a, a fire sale. Um, they they actually specialize in making religious videos. So they don't they didn't understand the game industry. They didn't know what they had. They didn't realize that that it wasn't worth millions and millions of dollars. And um, so they were just you know being outrageous about it. At one point, um, this guy, Barn Cleave, uh, from New York, and uh, from uh, London, contacted me and said he wanted to convert it um, to the app, to the iPhone. And I'm like, great, this is like every, anybody else that's asked me this question. He said he had venture capital. This was a, this was a new twist. <laughs> so I said, great, contact Bridgestone. And he did, and he came back and says, uh, yes, I see the problem here. <laughs> Um, but he's a bit more creative um, problem solver than most people. He said, okay, let's do this. Let's release a game that's like Chips Challenge, but we won't call it Chips Challenge. We'll, we'll say it's from the designer of Chips Challenge, and we can put that in the description legally. And then when people do a search on the app for Chips Challenge, they'll find the name in, in it, and they'll say, ah, oh, well, it's from the same guy. Maybe we'll buy this. And that was how Chuck's Challenge was born. And that, that was not, I did not come up with that name. That barn came up with that. And I said, okay, we'll do that. So that's how Chuck's Challenge was, was born. And that's why it took so long. At that point, we started a negotiation again with Bridgestone for the rights to release Chip's Challenge 2. It was already done. And uh, once a year, Barn would contact them and try to negotiate them again. And then around the 25th anniversary of Chip's Challenge, he said, look, it's been 25 years. You have this title. You're not doing anything with it. I don't think anybody wants to wait around until, you know, the 50 year, um, you know, to do something with this. So it's either now or never, guys. So they finally agreed to give us a, a license agreement on the name um, with a, a, a very generous compensation package to Bridgestone. And I won't say how much that was. But uh, and, but it does have something to do with why we still haven't made any money off of it. Uh, 
but we got the rights to use the name. Um, and that was when we finally got to release it. In fact, uh, we're currently in the process of updating the version on Steam where um, there was a, a recent um, patch to it. It allows people to share levels and level sets within the Steam platform. And that, that was just within the last month went live. Well, during the hiatus of uh, Chips Challenge 2, the fan community kind of helped drive content. Um, what stuff did they create? Yeah, the fans are amazing. I just want to point out. And if, if it weren't for... If it weren't for the fans and their support and their their insaneness, I, I wouldn't have done this. Um, you know, I really appreciate them. Um, so what had happened, um, and I guess one of the reasons that really drove me to write Chips Challenge 2 in, in the first place was the fans had reversed the the file form, reverse engineered the file format for the, uh, the Microsoft version. And they had not only had reversed the file format, so they were writing their own level editors to create new content for the Microsoft version. Some of them were actually writing their own game engines that would run this content because by this point, you couldn't actually buy the game anymore, but new content was available. So they were like like detectives um, sifting through the game logic to try to make it be you know, like cycle for cycle accurate um, for from the original uh, Microsoft version of, of the game logic. So they they had written their own version of the game engine, so their their own chip challenge clones that would load the content, and 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 they continued as a community to generate not only new levels, but uh, through some encouragement of mine um, and you know discussions I had with them. They started making official quote unquote <laughs> um, level packs that were community endorsed. Uh, you know that this is uh, level pack two and level pack three. And last I heard, they were up to level pack four. And I mean, for you, the fact that Chips Challenge Two did finally get a proper release must have kind of been a bit like vindication that you know after twenty three years it was finally available. It was actually a relief. I mean, obviously, as I said, when I couldn't release it, I was really sad for a couple years. I finally got over that. But one of the things that I had told my wife um, around that time was I basically showed her, you know, where on my computer to find all the files for it. And I said, look, if I die, take these files and release them to the pirate community so at least it gets out there and somebody will see it. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it didn't take that in the end. <laughs> it didn't take that. But, but that's, that's a true story. I actually did tell her that. An, an amazing thing was that you know, for like 20 years, this thing was vaporware that nobody knew about um, or, or people knew existed, but nobody had seen it. But there were about 20 people out there who are active members of the CHIPS community who not only knew about it, but actually had copies of it because they were part of my uh, alpha and beta test group because I, I wasn't testing it on my own when I was developing it. Each one of them had I had a signed contract with and each one of them their copy was personalized to have their name in it so that if they actually did release it to the pirate network, I would know where it came from. <laughs> and they knew, they knew that they were individually tagged. Uh, but I have to say, amazingly, nobody released it. It was, you know, throughout that entire 20-year period, it was actually kept under wrap, even though it was out there in the wild. Well, let's talk about another big project that you were involved with in the 90s. You joined a company that I remember reading about at the time. Everyone thought it was going to completely change video games forever. Um, 3DO, you joined them when they were working on the, um, the M2. Is that when you got involved at that point? Yes, uh, I, was, I was brought on to uh, the M2 team. Um, and we were working on a race car game called IMSA Racing. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I got to work with some really amazing people at 3DO. And I was there for a year and a half. And just about the time we finished up the racing game, um, they made the decision to can the project. And there was a lot of sadness um, at that point. Um, and I, I remember talking with Bill Budge, um, that, who that's an amazing uh, uh name there. Sorry, I want to name drop there. Bill Budge. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with Bill Budge about this and uh, he was really upset about it. And I, I gave him a different perspective that I think he, he appreciated. I said, you know, the year and a half I was here, I get to work on really amazing bleeding edge technology. And I get to work with some of the, the most talented people 
in the industry. And I learned so much and I really enjoyed my time here. And I'm, I'm not going to let the positive that I got out of this experience be spoiled by the fact that they canceled this project. I still am really glad I worked on it. Because the M2 was the follow-up system to the 3DO, wasn't it? The original it, multiplayer. Yes, it was. It was um, the processor was uh, PowerPC based, and uh, it had uh, you know custom silicon uh, triangle engine, much like you know the the NVIDIA chips of today. Um, and uh, you know, so they had a team of silicon designers that were building these amazing triangle engines, and it did uh, it did shading. Um, you know, so that you could get the the depth cues, and uh, uh, it did proper perspective of the textures on the triangles. It, it did everything that you would expect out of a modern um, graphics GPU now. And that was R.J. Michael and Dave Needle again working on that. Yes, again, I got to work with R.J. Michael and Dave Needle, and this is something really interesting. When I went to go work for 3DO, their offices were in the same building that Epix was in when I left. Uh, or when Epics, uh, when Epics crashed. So I, there I was going back to work in the same building I had worked in for years. That must have been <laughs> but for a different company <laughs> with the same people. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> with some, yeah, with, with many of the same people. That was it. Was really quite interesting. <laughs> so before the M2 project did get cancelled, what projects had you been working on, and what had been developed by that stage? Well, the only one that I would work had worked on was, as I said, the IMSA racing game, which was a uh, a race car game. Um, where you you know driving not formula race cars but cars that looked a bit more like um, stock cars. They were um, the International Motorsports Association or something like that. <clears throat> so they would have we would we were working on tracks like um, uh, we we had made a model of the Laguna Seca track, which is here in California, <clears throat> and uh, you know it's it's just this windy curvy up and down hills track um, somewhere somewhere south of the Bay Area, I think. Anyway, it was amazing because we, as a team, development team, we actually went to the Laguna Seca racetrack and uh, we got to drive our streetcars around on the track and that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we walked the whole track and we were like taking pictures of, you know, textures and things that we were going to put into it and uh, so that was a lot of fun as a team to go to go to the actual racetrack and, and walk it well with that those m2 chips i mean the the hardware i heard it did end up in like a, a couple of arcade machines and i don't know if you can if, if you know if this is true or not i did read online that apparently it was used in a coffee machine eventually i i have no idea <laughs> which sounds <laughs> really bizarre legends though <laughs> That is a really strange fate, though, isn't it, for the hardware? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I seriously doubt the validity of that, uh, but but I don't know. I I remember that uh, the development card that I had, uh, which was you know kind of the the unit on a card uh, that plugged into a Macintosh, was like eighteen thousand dollars a piece for those development boards. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, 3DO in general, I mean, like I said before, when they first came along, all the hype was that they were going to change the console landscape forever. How do you think they were like, overall in the console market? Do you think they made many mistakes? What, what kind of went wrong with 3DO? All I can really say about 3DO was that the, their very first platform, um, you know, the, the Opera platform, was an amazing device. And I have one, and I love playing it. Um, and that was back when they were SMSG, I think, uh, San Mateo Software Group. Um, and early on, they were they were very uh, very down to earth. Or, or, they were a very um, engineering oriented company. You know, like the like wives of, of the heads of, of the company would like make lunch and bring it in. You know, feed people around <laughs> around the lunch table. So, and they 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 carried that that through. You know, they had a cafeteria that you could eat for free. They were like one of the first companies that I worked for. I mean, this is common now. You know, like at Google. You know, if you're a Google employee, you can go to their cafeteria and eat for free. But 3DO was the first company that I'd ever seen that did things like that. Well, what are you up to nowadays? Because uh, in our call earlier, you kind of showed us this giant LED ball that you were creating. For Burning Man, yes. So, so when I left the game industry, uh, I left the game industry because uh, a f my my partner 
Kevin Furry. Kevin Furry and I actually worked together on California Games. He was he was with me at Epics. Kevin Furry and I um, we got out of the game industry to make things out of LEDs, um, and we started out making LED signs, and we sold quite a few into the uh, the casino industry. You know, like for jackpots and things like that. We we ended up doing more cut more and more custom work. We had done so many interesting things. Some of them were, were like art related, and but they were it's all custom work for building things out of LEDs. We we got the attention of um, Philips Lighting, and I think Philips at the time had the they had the contract on the Times Square Ball in New York for uh, New Year's Eve, <clears throat> and so we got a deal where we got to uh, Philips wanted to replace all the lights which were incandescent bulbs with LEDs but they really didn't have an engineering staff that could handle it so they they got us involved to do that so we uh, we engineered um, the the lights for the Times Square Ball and we built all those lights so uh, so the very first time we built the ball which was for the 2007 2008 um, year end um, my signatures inside was inside that ball. We got we got to autograph it, <clears throat> and I got to go to New York and see the ball drop that year. That was an amazing adventure. Two years later, um, they came back to us. They said they wanted to want us to build the ball again at twice the diameter. So it, it went from six feet to twelve feet, and they changed it to be on display every day instead of just on New Year's Eve. And I'm still building things out of LEDs professionally. Uh, I've built a lot of lot of uh, art pieces. Well, that kind of you know it seems to be a bit of a theme throughout your career that you've always kind of pushed technical limitations and always looked for the next big thing. So it's been incredible to get these stories off you, Chuck. I mean, have you got any interest in the in the gaming industry at the moment? Then, or is there anything to maybe revisit there at some point? Any remakes of your classics? No, uh, I mean, you know, I'll continue to, to work with, uh, with the Chips Challenge community and we'll, we'll continue to, you know, uh, make some improvements, um, you know, to the, the stuff we have out there, be it Chuck's Challenge or Chips Challenge. And then if, if I find the time, you know, I, I have a, I'm pretty busy with the LED stuff. If I find the time, I, I may work on another product in that same genre. Uh, in in the chips challenge, well, it basically in the in the real time puzzle solving um, genre, but um, that I, I don't plan to go back into the industry. Um, I, I've, I've joked about it, but um, it's it's not really what what it once was. I don't think I would really like it as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing with the way that indie gaming works today, you can kind of just dip your toe in and not commit to it 100% full-time now, can't you, though? Yeah, but you need a day job if you're going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your stories. Obviously, we could talk to you all night, but, you know, we appreciate it's a weekend and uh, we don't want to take up all of your day. But thank you so much for uh, sharing your stories with us this week. You're certainly welcome. It was good to talk to you. 